Well, in elementary school, one of the most um, intimidating moments of the day came during lunchtime. You know, sometimes my mom would pack these uh, really good American lunches, like she would pack a turkey sandwich or ham and cheese or sometimes roast beef. And if I was lucky, I opened my lunch bag and I found a Lunchables. You guys remember Lunchables? They had the pizza one. My favorite was the taco one. But every once in a while, once in a blue moon, I would zip open my lunch bag and my nostrils would be, would be hit with the very powerful aroma of fermented cabbage, also known in the Korean language as kimchi. And I remember as I would do that one time, I only had one other Korean in my class, right? I remember one time I opened it, and right before you know it hit the room, she could sense it. And we just locked eyes for a moment. And I remember she looked at me and she said, she just went like this. Because she knew what was about to go down. I opened the bag fully, and the stench of that kimchi filled the atmosphere of the room. And I remember in my vicinity, in my local area, people were like starting to sniff in the air until everyone realized it was my lunch. And one kid even asked the teacher, teacher, what is that smell? Why does it smell so bad? And I remember at that moment feeling my otherness like I never did before. In that moment, I was hyper aware of how different I was. And I find that we often fear those who are different from us, don't we? We otherness makes us uncomfortable. We create walls and boundaries around ourselves and our communities and only let those who look, think, and act like us in. It's human nature to be afraid, to be weary of otherness. And so we label and judge others that we think are different from us. As one of my favorite authors put it, we often other one another. We other each other. And maybe you can think of a time where you felt othered for being different. Maybe it was because of the color of your skin. Maybe it was because of the way you voted. Maybe it was because of your degree or how much you make. Maybe it was because of your sexual orientation. I find that we are often experiencing othering one another. And we other one another for a variety of reasons, right? It could be because of race. It could be because of religion, because of politics, because of appearance, because of education, socioeconomic status, sexuality, theology. But the results are always the same. The result of our tendency to other one another is that our communities, our Instagram and TikTok feeds, our inner circles all end up looking a lot like us thinking a lot like us, speaking a lot like us, believing a lot like us. But hear me, church, this is not the kind of togetherness that God calls us to. This is not the kind of togetherness that the church should be marked by. In a book that I was reading um, by Pete Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, we went into it last season, he talks about the difference between unhealthy togetherness and healthy togetherness. Right? In unhealthy togetherness, there's a lack of recognition or respect for the other person as a separate human being with their own thoughts, feelings, fears, and values. We have this diagram up here, and sometimes it's, it's money. Who you are and who I am is often, it's not clear where one person ends and the other person begins. And so we often project ourselves onto others, and we become disappointed when we realize, oh, you're not really like me at all. It's a togetherness that's defined by our sameness. You know, this is often played out um, when our parents, you know, as a parent, I'm starting to understand a little more and empathize with my parents. But 
But it really plays out when our parents come to the harsh realization that we are not their mini-me's anymore, right? Right? They, they, they come to this harsh realization that we're not mere extensions of them, that we're our own unique individuals with our own thoughts, with our own values, with our own beliefs, with our own way of living and going about our world and unhealthy togetherness. There is no room for differences in relationship. But in healthy togetherness, there's a mutual acknowledgement and respect for one another as distinct human beings, unique and different in who we are. We have this diagram up here that, in, that shows what healthy togetherness looks like, right? I'm my own person with my own hopes, thoughts, beliefs, feelings, values, and fears. You're your own person with your, your own hopes, thoughts, beliefs, feelings, values, and fears. And even if those things don't align, even if they're different, we can still be in relationship. We can still be together. There is differentiation. And in fact, we learn to see the beauty in our differences. We say, I can learn from you, and you can learn from me. This is healthy togetherness. You know, when me and my best friends were first starting to get, in, get to know each other about 15 years ago, we had like everything in common. We had so much in common. Our preferences, our opinions, even our beliefs were more or less very identical and same. The shows we watched, the hobbies that we did, um, even our theological beliefs were identical. But I found in our relationship, it's been 15 years now, the longer that we walked together, the more our differences started surfacing. Why? Because each of us were changing and growing. Each of us grew, each of us came into ourselves, discovered who we were, and now our friend group, we have a wide spectrum of different opinions and values and beliefs, yet we're able to acknowledge our differences and still remain close friends, healthy, togetherness. All this to say, if we only choose to remain in relationship with those who are like us, we'll never be able to have long-lasting friendships in our lives. Why? Because people are constantly changing and growing. And that's not to say maybe some friends are for some seasons, but I think some of us have discarded relationships that we're actually meant to run with for a long time because we couldn't reconcile the differences between us. And if our concept of togetherness doesn't have space for that kind of growth and change, It'll eventually kill our relationships. Thomas Merton, who's an amazing Christian mystic, he once said, the beginning of love is the will to let those we love be perfectly themselves. The resolution not to twist them to fit our own image. If in loving them, we do not love what they are, but only their potential likeness to ourselves, then we do not love them. We only love the reflection of ourselves we find in them. Are we loving others or are we loving our reflection of ourselves in them? You know, Zion's at an age where I'm giving him a pass, okay? He loves looking at himself. Every mirror that we pass, he is so into his own reflection. Even when I'm showing him videos on my phone, he don't care about Coco Melon. He don't care about Miss Rachel. He wants to watch videos of himself. And if we don't grow out of that, we become these adult babies that only look for ourselves and others. And when Kevin doesn't look like me or think like me or believe like me, I don't let him in close. If JP doesn't look like me or sing like me or lead worship like me, we can't walk together. How 
healthy togetherness makes room for the differences, for the beauty of the ways that we are unique to one another. But we have a hard time understanding that in the church, don't we? We tell people, come in and we'll love you unconditionally, but our love is actually really conditional. We say, hey, you belong here. But what we're really saying is you can belong here if you start to look more like us. Right, we say, welcome home. We have the banners and the signs, but what we're really saying is welcome home if you can change. You might say, but Pastor Mickey, Jesus, he ate with the sinners. He hung out with the sinners, but they didn't remain sinners. Mic drop, boom, they were transformed. And to that I say, are you Jesus, bro? Are you Jesus' sister in Christ? No. When's the last time you walked on water? When's the last time you died for the redemption of the world and came back from the dead? We are not Jesus. Our job is not to change people. Our job is not to transform people. And in fact, when we use those words, what we're really saying is change them to look more like us. Or our idea of what a mature disciple should look like. No. Our job is to lead people into an encounter with the one who changes everything. Our job is to point people to the one who transforms us from the inside out. Stop trying to take Jesus' job. You suck at it anyway. Trust me. We are not Jesus. Our job is to love people regardless of how different they are from us. Leave it to Jesus to transform them how he sees fit. And so we find actually in the New Testament church... A lot of the cultural values revolved around this idea of hospitality. Okay, in Hebrews 13, 1 through 2, might not make sense, but it, it'll fit in. Paul's addressing the church, and he says this, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. I think we're really good. At showing love to our brothers and sisters, the people that look like us, that think like us, that believe like us. But I think one lost art that the church has lost in our modern day is showing love to the stranger, to the other, to the person whose values don't align with ours, to the person who lives a very different lifestyle from us. You see, the word hospitality here is actually made up of two Greek words. The first word is philos which is like the type of love or affection that would be shared between friends. It's like, you know, me and Jacob are friends. It's the type of love and affection we show one another. But the second word in hospitality is xenos, which actually means stranger or other. And so by very definition, hospitality is loving the stranger, loving the other the way that you would a friend. It's loving the person that's different from me the way I would love someone I'm really tight with, someone who's my homie, right? It's caring for them the way you would a loved one. And this is the kind of togetherness that God calls us to cultivate. It's one that welcomes the stranger and says, hey, we have room for you here. It's making space for the other and welcoming them in. It's being with and loving people who see and experience the world very differently than we do. It's really cool because in the early church, um, this was actually a very common practice, hospitality, like welcoming in strangers. I think in our day and age, you know, we're talking about raising Zion and we're like, okay, we got to teach him not to talk to strangers. And I think there's this general apprehension and fear and worry about strangers in the modern day. And rightfully so. It's kind of a crazy world out there. But in the early church, it was actually a very common practice to welcome in strangers, and when they would welcome in strangers, they would do so with the belief that they were specially privileged. 
that strangers were specially privileged to bring new promise and fresh revelation from God. This is why Paul says in the verse we just read, in welcoming strangers, some of you have entertained angels without even knowing it. Right? They were so bought into this idea that when we welcome in a stranger, we're creating a space and an opportunity where we can get a fresh revelation of who God is and how he's moving. And they believed this so much that every family was actually encouraged to set aside a room in their house in case any guest or stranger would come through. That's how much they believed it. Like, we're, we're fighting just for an extra bedroom here in San Francisco for Zion, but back in the day, they would go for one more bedroom. It was that important that just in case a stranger would come by, we need to have a space ready to receive them and welcome them. In fact, in Scripture, it's seen all throughout that God's promise and revelation, they're often brought not through what's familiar or who we know or who are like us, but through the stranger. Think about it. Abraham and Sarah. They received the promise of a son, not from a family member, not from a local doctor or a neighbor, but they received it from a stranger, an angel who's a stranger who wandered in at night that they showed hospitality to. Jacob, he meets God by wrestling with the stranger throughout the night. Christ, he's visited in the manger, not by his own people, but by the magi, foreigners, right? In, in the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells, the wounded man isn't helped by his own kinfolk or people of his own religion, but by a Samaritan, an outsider, a stranger. See, with the stranger lies surprise, a new possibility, an aspect of God's heart that we've never experienced before. This is going to be a really long quote. Parker Palmer, I promise it'll rock you. He talks about this idea of embracing the stranger and seeing, even seeing God as a stranger. This is what he says. How much a stranger is necessary in the Christian life? God persistently challenges conventional truth and regularly upsets the world's way of looking at things. It's no accident that this God is so often represented by the stranger. Where the world sees impossibility, God sees potential. Where the world sees comfort, God sees idolatry. Where the world sees insecurity, God sees occasions for faith. Where the world sees death, God proclaims life. And God uses the stranger to shake us from our conventional points of view, to remove the scales of worldly assumptions from our eyes. God is a stranger to us. And it is at the risk of missing God's truth that we domesticate God. Reduce God to the role of familiar friend. It is in being brought out of our comfort zone into the unfamiliar that we see that God is there too. And so then we see more of God. In the stranger, we see the face of God. They could end the service right there, Parker. He preached so much better than I ever could. I wonder how much of God are we missing out on because we don't make room for the stranger in our lives? How many revelations of God's heart are we blind to because we don't make space for the other in our hearts? It's in our embrace of those who are radically different from us where we come to know a part of God that we have never known before. It's a... Uh, Almost two years ago now that we are celebrating. Remember our sophomore celebration? I don't know why. <clears throat> Sorry. 
got something in my throat. I don't know why, but we love to kind of theme our anniversaries around like sophomore and last year we did like, what was, what was last year? A Young, Wild, and Free. I think this year we might try to do a prom kind of theme because it's our fourth year, our senior year. I don't know, we'll see. Alex has all the best ideas. But two years ago, a sophomore celebration, um, I don't know if you remember, but one of my mentors, Pastor Brian, he preached, um, he sent us a sermon. Everything was video back then. He sent us a sermon to add into our service. And I remember when I received it, I looked at the, the length of time it was, and it was like 12 minutes long. And I remember thinking, should I message that? Like, did you send me a sermonette? Like, why couldn't you send me like a 45-minute? I know how long you preach. Why'd you send me a 12-minute sermonette? And really, I kind of had low expectations. I, I kind of felt like he slighted us a little bit. Like, he's just kind of just sharing something on the whim. But I remember listening to it as I was editing, not even during service, when I was editing the service throughout the week. And as I was listening to his teaching, I began weeping. I began crying and being moved. He was actually talking to the passage that we're going to go into next, Acts 10, about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And as he was speaking, I felt something unlocked for 99. But, but what's funny is I actually never taught on it for the last two years until today. Because I just felt like it was still ruminating and stewing. And all that to say, I, as I share this next portion of the sermon as we wrap up, I feel like this is at the very heartbeat of who you are, who we are as a church. Who 99 is, what we're called to be, who we're called to be, and who we're called to be too. And so Acts 10, I'm going to kind of just skim in and out, but... We'll kind of close off this story. Acts 10, 1 through 2. This is how it starts. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. At first glance, cool. There's this guy in the Italian region, Cornelius. He loves God. He gives to the poor. What's the big deal? We have to understand at the time, Cornelius, he's a Gentile. And at this time, the early church, they still believed that God was only moving among the Jewish people. And so by all accounts, Gentiles, who Cornelius was, were considered unclean, rejected by God. God wasn't among them. But here's Cornelius. Even though he's not acknowledged as a follower of Jesus, he's here by himself. No, no one's paying any mind to him, no attention to him. And here he is, he's seeking God with all his heart. He's being super generous to those who are in need. A man that the church wouldn't even have acknowledged as a follower of Jesus. A man the church wouldn't have even noticed that the Spirit of God was moving him. And I was reading this, I thought, don't we do that so often? We assume that God's not moving in that person's life. We assume that God's not moving at that church across the street. We assume that God's not moving in that city. Bro, I can't tell you how many people come to me when I tell them I'm a pastor in San Francisco. They say, oh, God bless you, pastor. Oh, San Francisco, hopeless. Right? We, we assume that God's not moving there or among that people. We assume that God's not moving in the other. And he's only moving among us in our ways and our understanding. But church, hear me. He's so much bigger than that. I wonder where God is moving right now that we just don't see or acknowledge. What if he's moving in that person here in this very room that you think is backslidden in the back of your mind? What if he's moving in that homeless encampment in that neighborhood that you would never dare go to? What if he's moving in the Castro among the very people that you think are being judged by God? You know what blew up my theology? When one of my church members who also happened to be gay embodied more fruits of the Holy Spirit than some of my leaders did. 
You know what blew up my theology? When a person who participated, barely participated in our church programs was more in tune when they prayed and prophesied than I was. You know what blew up my theology? When the church we visited in Indonesia with barely any resources that we went to bless and pour into actually had way more to offer us than we did them. God is far bigger. He's far wider than we could ever imagine. I think sometimes we box him in that he's only moving among these people in this way. And oftentimes those people look a lot like us. But he's so much bigger. He's moving among the Gentiles that Jewish believers had no idea. It goes on. About noon, the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. You know, I've been there. You ever been so hungry you fell into a Holy Spirit trance? He saw heaven open and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Verse 9. Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. But the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. Now some of you are wondering, okay, this is a random visual, something like Josh Gorello would come up with. But what's going on here? God's saying to Peter, I'm moving among the Gentiles. You had no idea, huh? I'm actually moving among those people that you had written off. Those you excluded are actually included in. Those you othered are actually your brothers and your sisters. And not only that, they don't need to adopt your culture. They don't need to adopt your customs or your ways to be saved. They don't need to become like you in order to be with you. They can, in their otherness, still be faithful to me. And so God, he gives Peter this revelation that's, that's like an honestly like an atomic bomb on the church. It was radical. It was offensive. And he sends Peter back to Cornelius to essentially tell him, hey, welcome to the family, bro. Not only that, but to make a statement, say, not just you, but the Gentiles. There's room for all of you here in the family of God. We don't have a monopoly on how God is moving. We acknowledge he's moving among you too. And I'll cut it off at this verse, 27, 28. There's still more in the story, but we'll, we'll cut it here. It says, while talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. As I read this, As I read this, I began wondering how many Corneliuses are out there that God is moving among that have yet to meet a Peter who would welcome them in. How many people are out there that are seeking God that the church is blind to because they don't fit the mold or they don't look like us or worship like us or, or do the things that we think are right? Are there people we're calling impure and unclean that God is calling pure and clean? Where are the Peters 
who would look out at those upon the world who, call, who the world would call hopeless and call them redeemed. Hear me, church. The togetherness that God calls us to as the church is not a closed circle. It's an open circle. Right? We spend so much time making the gospel about who's excluded, right? The Republicans or the Democrats, the gays, the lesbians, trans, sex workers, addicts, prisoners. But what the gospel is actually not about who's excluded. The good news of the gospel is actually who is actually included in. That's the radical message. It's not that we are the chosen ones and they are not. No, it's about we have a circle that's a lot wider than we understand. And more people are welcomed in than we understand. See, when you look at Jesus' life and the kind of people he chose to spend most of his time with, it wasn't those who were in. It wasn't the religious elite. It was those who were on the outside looking in. It was the misfits, the outliers, the rebels, and the runaways. It was those the world looked at and called sinners. It was those that the religious scoffed at and said God couldn't possibly be moving among them. Hear me, church. The circle is so much wider than you and I could imagine. It's radically inclusive to the point where it's offensive and uncomfortable. It should be uncomfortable, the kind of people that walk into the doors of our church. But when's the last time, honestly, you felt uncomfortable with the kind of person that walked in through those doors? When was the last time you sat next to someone and said, oh man, this is weird, I feel uncomfortable because they're so different from me while still acknowledging God could still be moving among them. The kingdom is radically inclusive, a lot more than we understand or realize. On with this, I was reflecting on our name 99 as I was writing this sermon. I love that when you think of the number 99, you can't help but think of the number one, right? There's this sense of incompleteness about the number 99. We chose a church name that's kind of incomplete, y'all, right? There's a sense of incompleteness that comes to mind when you think of the number 99, right? Because if your phone is 99% charged, you think, okay, there's still 1% left to go, right? Right? When you have 99 cents, we don't really carry pocket change anymore, but when you had 99 cents and you want to buy that dollar cone at the ice cream store, you think, I need one more cent to make a dollar. I was thinking about this, and I felt like God saying, Mickey, as long as you're 99, there's still room for the one. If we ever change our name to 100, all bets are off. But as long as we're 99, there's still room for the one. For the one who doesn't belong. For the one who doesn't fit. For the one who's different. For the one who's been other. For the one the world calls rejected and unclean. As long as we're 99, there's a place for you here. And I don't ever want us to lose this. Even if we grow to 100 people, we're still the 99 who have a heart for the one. Even if we grow to 1,000, we're still the 99 who have room for the one. We will never outgrow being a house that welcomes the stranger, that makes space for the other. There will always be room for the one here. And as we conclude, maybe conclude our collection on togetherness, I feel like the thing that God wants us to highlight is the end goal isn't just for us to be a tight-knit, together, covenant community of believers. The end goal is for us to be a place where people can feel safe to come into our doors and say, I could be a person. I could belong there too. I could be, this could be my people. This could be my home. This is a place 
or I'm seen, loved, and cherished and acknowledged as a son or daughter of God. That's the end goal of our togetherness. And any, any kind of covenant connection that we do is to meet that goal at the end, is to become a place where the world can come to look at and say, that is what the gospel is. The circle is so much wider than you and I think. And so as we close, I just want us to think about the ways that God is challenging us to make room in our lives and our hearts for the stranger, for the other. Maybe it's that coworker that is just so radically different from who you are. Maybe it's that church member that you think in the back of the mind is backslidden. Maybe God has a word for you from them. Maybe it's that community or that people or that group that you had written off. But what? How is God challenging you to make space for the stranger and for the other? Because I believe it's in the face of the stranger where we often see the face of God. So right now, why don't we close our eyes as we get ready to respond? Maybe for some of you, uh, this message was particularly offensive or uncomfortable because maybe in your mind, maybe what's racing is, okay, but that doesn't align with my theology. Um, that doesn't really align with what I believe. But I believe love at its purest form truly has no conditions. When we're talking about the kind of love that Jesus embodied here on earth is the kind that said, come as you are. And even if you don't change, I will love you. How many times have we deviated from God's heart for us, but God still said, I love you, run into my arms. How many times have we dropped the ball? How many times have we grossly reflected our maker, yet God still came to us with open arms and said, you can belong here. Yet we rarely embody that kind of love to our world. But 99, what if we could live up to our namesake? What if we could truly be a house for the one? Maybe the crowds of um, super religious elite won't come into our doors. Maybe the theologians won't be rushing into this church. Maybe all the super Christians won't find a home here. But maybe we become a house for the misfits, for the rebels and the runaways who gave up on church, who gave church a try, who gave God a try. But it didn't work out, but they're starting to come back. What if we could be a place where people could experience the radical acceptance and inclusion of the gospel? What if we can trust God to walk with people instead of trying to micromanage the transformation and formation? What if we could trust that Holy Spirit is moving in them as much as he's moving in me? Church, let's be the 99 that has space for the one. Let's be the 99 that has room for the other. Holy Spirit, I pray right now you'd speak to our hearts. I don't know if this message is resonating or hitting anyone, but I just feel this is a mandate you've given our church. And it's, it's, it's scary, it's uncomfortable, it's unsafe, but I feel like it's us. I feel like we're the ones who make space for all the people that don't belong in the other churches. We are already reality rejects, right? But I, I, I believe beyond that, we are going to be a house for those who 
couldn't find belonging at the other church. Not because the church is bad, but because we have an intentional space for the one. So God, give us that heart of hospitality. Give us that heart of love and affection for the stranger and for the other. Let us be the ones who say, we have room for you here, weirdo, misfit. We have room for you here, other and stranger. We have room for you here, rejected and called unclean. And we are going to call you redeemed. As you close your eyes, I want to close with this image. Sorry, I keep saying we're going to close, but I feel like God wants to leave you with this. With your eyes closed, I want you to imagine this. Imagine someone that you really care about. And imagine you're approaching them and you're, you're opening your arms for a hug. Author Miroslav Volf, he's a Croatian theologian who lived through the genocide and war in former Yugoslavia. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he talks about embrace in a way that I think is really relevant to what we're talking about here. And he says, embrace, it has a fourfold rhythm to it. First, imagine, is the opening of the arms. Here, the person, they offer themselves up to another unconditionally. They say, I want relationship with you. All of you. Not you the way I want you to be. Not you the way that I imagine you to be. But you, all of who you are, I'm opening myself up to you. There's vulnerability, but there's also mystery. I don't, I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know how you respond, but I know that if you are also open, you'll meet me halfway. Next is the waiting. Imagine yourself with your arms open in front of that person. You're waiting, right? And embrace, it can never be demanded. Alistair McFadden, he speaks of a letting be, which is not a letting go. It's giving someone space and time, but not the kind that disengages or shrugs them off. You're saying to them, I want you to be in my arms, but I'm not going to force you. I'm just available. I'm open. Now imagine you are closing your arms around them now. This is the moment all of this is for. We've arrived, the fulfillment of the desire for relationship, but this is a soft touch. It's not a bear hug or an overarching hug. I don't close my arms around the other too tightly as to crush them and assimilate them into becoming like me. In the embrace, I'm saying you are still you and I'm still me. And that's okay. We allow the other to continue being the other while still embracing them. And last, I want you to imagine after the glorious hug that's not too hard or too soft, you open your arms again. And in opening our arms again, we remember that even as we're called to communion, this is a communion we must continue to choose again and again. It takes intention. I feel this image of a hug, the rhythm of a hug, gives us a paradigm for how we're called to embrace the other. I will open my arms. I will make myself vulnerable to you. And I'm saying you can come as you are, all of who you are. You don't need to hide or mask anything. I want you and all of you. We wait. We give the other person agency. You don't have to come here. You don't have to be embraced, but I want you to. And then we close our arms. We actually embrace. And in our embrace, we're not trying to change the other person. We're saying, I love you as you are. Warts and all. Differences and all. Otherness and all. And then we open them again. We release them to remember 
And we have to be intentional. That embraces don't just happen. It takes intentionality. And so God, as we ruminate on this, this image of a hug, of an embrace, I pray that we would make space in our hearts for the other. Even this week, give us tangible ways that we can make space for the stranger, for the other into our lives. Maybe it's the person of a different cultural background than us. Maybe it's someone who thinks about God radically different than I do. Maybe it's someone from a different socioeconomic class or status. Maybe it's someone from a different industry. But give us a heart of compassion for the other, a heart of love for the stranger. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for being with us. We love you, God. And we want to continue to go deeper into you. We give you the highest praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.